church's congregational meeting ended later uh, than they usually do. In fact, it was one of the longest meetings that we have had uh, ever. Uh, the reason that it took so much time is because we spent a good bit of uh, moments talking together about our future, particularly the future of our building and our property. Um, you saw some plans uh, for this building, uh, that what it might look like following an addition and some remodeling, and I, I wonder uh, what you, you thought about that, if you talked about it or thought about it more when you were finished uh, with the day and the week. Um, I leave those meetings uh, with two opposite uh, sets of emotions. On the one hand, uh, I am excited to think about the possibilities and the potential. That's exciting to think about. On the other hand, though, I am a bit anxious, disquieted, um, maybe even discouraged. If these come, plans come to fruition, they will come as a result of a significant amount of money, uh, money whose source is not immediately apparent. Um, I mentioned some specifics last week, and uh, we talked about some preliminary steps uh, along the way. The bulletin describes them a little bit more. Uh, projects for 2013, installing the platform lift, uh, per- perhaps purchasing two acres of uh, land behind us that are uh, available for sale. Last month, I called my contact at the nonprofit organization that owns that land, I called him last month to confirm that the land was indeed still for sale. He said it was. And then on Friday of this week, he said, I'd like to meet with you next week to talk about uh, that land. So we have an appointment. I don't have any money to buy the land, and I don't have permission from the congregation to buy the land, which in this instance is a very convenient response that I can give to him. Uh, But um, we're meeting together on Tuesday morning. Um, I I mentioned last week that if we were to complete both of these projects this fall, I threw out a number. We would need everyone who uses offering envelopes to give $34 more per week. $34 more per week per envelope. Now, um, that number, think about it, is, is a relatively small amount of number, on the one, a small amount of money on the one hand. Uh, you probably spend more than that when you fill your gas tank of your car. You spend more than that. Now, but on the other hand, some of you are saying, when I fill my gas tank, I double the value of my car. Um, It's one tank of gas, but it still has to be massaged somehow into the budget. It's not insignificant. You've been a part, if you've been a part of a church at all for any length of time, you've been a part of a church that's trying to raise money for a specific project. Uh, it, churches are always raising money, it seems like, for, for something. And sometimes their appeals can be rather manipulative, can't they? I, I struggle in this instance for a couple of reasons I struggle. One, um, I, I, I am not very skilled at asking people directly to make financial investments. Uh, if, if this were a sales department and we were talking about marketing, that would be called closing the deal. I don't consider myself very good at that. Don Landis every now and then teases me and he asks me if I ever have thought about a career in printing sales. My family would starve. <laughs> Another reason I struggle with this is that I, sometimes some of the, the ways that people ask for money is just manipulative, isn't it? Uh, you hear some of the slogans, for the children, for the unreached, 
for the mission, for the lost. And all those are, are good causes, and they focus your attention on the needs of others, which is good, but it's not, it's not ultimate, I don't think, not ultimate enough, even though. I, I, w- I want to ask, even though a, a more basic question, a more basic question at all to ask is, why should we give at all, not just to a project, but why, when the offering plate comes by, or uh, when you're at home writing your check, or uh, setting up your budget, at whatever point the decision is made about what you're going to give, and it happens at various points in your life, uh, why should you do that? I want to help answer that question this morning, and fortunately for us, we are at a point in our study in the Bible today that lends itself very well to that. Um, I'm going to direct your attention to passage of Scripture that will help us answer this question, why give? Why should we give? What does giving do? And the reason that this passage is helpful is because we're talking together about the Old Testament sacrificial system. And it's to this system that the Apostle Paul appeals when he wants to thank people for their giving. Um, For example, you have on this green sheet there, you can turn in your Bibles if you want, a verse uh, in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to get to the book of Leviticus in just a moment. But in Philippians chapter 4, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi and he's thanking them for money that they sent. And look at the vocabulary he uses, the Old Testament vocabulary he borrows in order to describe their giving. Look at what it says. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus, uh, the messenger, the gifts that you sent. They are a fragrant offering. An acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Uh, Paul uses the word sacrifice here, not just because he's describing the fact that the Philippians had to give up something. That's one way we use the word sacrifice, right? You give up something. It, It costs them something to give. Paul uses the word sacrifice not just because of the cost that was involved, but because of what their gift says about God. One of the ways that the apostles used the Old Testament, Old Covenant language and, and, and um, uh, system of sacrifice was in describing giving. And he, they, they do so because they're trying to, to make a statement about what giving, what the offering of your money is, what it says, what it does, why it is part of worship. I want to show you that this morning from the Bible. And uh, this maybe will be my best opportunity ever to flesh out that statement that I make whenever we talk about money at our church. You know what it is. At our church, we care more about your heart than about your wallet. But because we care about your heart, we have to talk to you about your wallet. You're going to see that, I think, this morning. Uh, we are making our way very slowly through the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is the book for Levites that group of men who were members of a tribe who were responsible for overseeing the worship of the nation of Israel. And their worship had a particular flavor and setting because the Old Testament nation of Israel, in a way that is different from any other nation that has lived on the earth, that has existed, had, were the host, was the host of God himself. By his choice and part of his covenant, he made with them God, the holy God of the Bible, moved in among the people. (coughs) And Leviticus is a book that instructs them how to worship and how to live now that the God who created them and who rescued them from Egypt lives with them. 
Now, the first seven chapters of Leviticus focus our attention on the uh, sacrifices, and chapter 2 is about grain offerings. Last week, we talked about burnt offerings, uh, and after the service, I was asked a number of questions by really good questions about this text and this process. Questions <laughs> I don't always know the answer to. In fact, um, I wrote John Belts, who's in Israel, who is studying, and I asked him, Johnny, help me. Uh, he's coming home. Next Sunday, he's flying home for his semester break, and he's, we're going to go to lunch, and he's going to explain everything to me. Um, the, the problem, though, that, that we encounter is that some of the questions we have, uh, we just don't know the answers. Nobody, not even Johnny knows the answers to all of the questions we have. I, it seems like Leviticus has some very specific and detailed things for us, but it doesn't tell us everything. I think the reason why it doesn't tell us everything is because there are some parts of the sacrificial system that a father taught his son that you had to learn by experience and learn by doing. That or they were so much part of the culture that people just knew how to do it and knew what it looked like. Sometimes... Um, we, we carry wrong impressions, some confused thinking about the sacrificial system. I, I know that, that I have. Um, one of these ideas, and I understand why we have this assumption, but it's not, it's not quite right. One of the ideas is that we talk about the Old Testament sacrificial system as if there is a one-to-one correspondence between uh, sins and sacrifice. This is how sometimes we think, that if anybody ever sinned, they needed to write that down, and then for that sin, they needed to offer a lamb. So if you're keeping track, you, you get up in the high digits, you've got to go offer that many sacrifices because there's a one-to-one correspondence between your sin and your need for a substitute. Uh, there was a one-to-one sin-to-sheep correspondence. Um, now, sometimes there was, as in the case of sin offerings, which we'll come to in a minute, but mostly there was a, a general in the system constant reminder that sinful people in the presence of a holy God always need to come on the basis of a substitute. They didn't think about the sacrifices in terms of one-to-one correspondence. Is the sheep good for ten sins and a ram's good for twenty? And, or a, a sheep's good for five people and a ram's good for ten people? There wasn't this correspondence. There was just a general need in the sacrifices for a constant cleansing. You would offer your sacrifice, and by doing, you'd say to God, I am unworthy to be in your presence, and I deserve to die. This is my representative. There's not an accounting system like we sometimes think. I think we should remember this because of how the New Testament talks uh, about uh, Jesus' sacrifice. There are followers of Christ, and perhaps you're among them, who agonize over their sins and, and confessing them. Maybe you're under the impression that, that unconfessed sin, any unconfessed sin, is an uncrossable barrier in your relationship with God. And, and so you are among those who just rack your brain, your, your very sensitive conscience. You spend a lot of time worrying and agonizing over this. Are there sins? Are there other sins that I should confess? What else do I need to confess? Um, if you're familiar with the, uh, the reformer Martin Luther, when he was still a monk, would spend hours in the confessional trying to, to name, identify every sin that he had committed. 
But you, you, you can identify them all. Um, what about sins that you commit that you don't know about? Sin, things that you should have done that you didn't do. Those type of sins. You really should have been friendlier this morning in church. Yeah, I know I sinned. I'm sorry. You know, I, can you identify all of all? You, you can't. The Bible tells us that it is a normal part of our relationship with God to confess sins. You need to confess your sins. This is part of the normal relationship with God. In fact, I think it would be wonderful if we included that more in our worship services, our corporate confession of sin, because this is a normal part of a relationship with God. The Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 9, it's written there, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. This is a normal part of living in a broken world. We constantly fall short of God's standards. Notice what John also says. He says, He forgives us our sins and He purifies us from all unrighteousness. I would circle that word all. All unrighteousness. We confess our sins and we're forgiven. You will not be able to identify them all, but because of the gracious work of Jesus Christ, there is cleansing for all unrighteousness. The sins you know of and that you confess, which we should, and the sins that you're not aware of. Christ's sacrifice is, is for all sins. And we are in need of constant cleansing. Jesus Christ is our advocate and uh, he is our constant provider of cleansing. Now, there's another errant idea, another confused thinking that we sometimes carry around. And the other idea is that we sometimes think that blood sacrifices were the only sacrifices. Blood sacrifices were the only sacrifices. That, that's really not quite true either. In fact, this morning, we're going to talk about a, a grain offering. A grain offering. Um, in fact, uh, the offerings, too, were not uh, often presented singly. They were often presented in a series. When you would go to worship, you would probably offer a sin offering first, and then a burnt offering, and then, we're not going to talk about it because it's not in Leviticus, but it's elsewhere in the Bible, a drink offering, or your translation of the Bible might say libation. A libation, you pour wine on the altar. And then a, uh, a grain offering. There was a series of offerings that were presented when you would go to worship. You would take more than one animal to uh, worship. We'll talk about more about this sequence uh, a little bit uh, later. But these three in particular, burnt, drink, and grain offering, went together. Now, think about this here with me for a minute. What does that make you think of? Meat, drink, Bread. Does that sound like anything to you? Dinner. Right? Dinner. Um, if you were thinking dinner, you would be correct. Uh, here we see how the sacrificial system of the Old Testament fits into the culture in which it was given. The Israelites were surrounded by pagan nations who honored their gods by feeding them. Uh, the Israelites, um, their gods, of the, the, the Canaanite gods, they needed to be fed. In fact, um, you would have in your home a little statue of your god, maybe it would be smaller than that, a little statue, and if you were a faithful worshiper of that god represented by the statue, you would dress your statue, put food in front of your statue, your idol, and you would, in fact, they did this, carry your statue from home to home so that your little statue could play with other little statues in other little homes. 
Now, does your daughter do this with her dolls? If you're thinking that way, you're exactly correct. This is what the ancients did to their gods. And if they cared for the little statues well enough by feeding them, clothing them, and giving them enough socialization, uh, they would hope that the real gods who lived somewhere in the heavens would treat the people kindly. I'm going to take care of the statue well enough by feeding it, clothing it, uh, caring for it, and maybe the God represented by the statue will give me the blessings that I want. Now, does that sound strange to you? Silly? A little bit? Remember, this is a a different culture. Um, It might sound silly to us, but you know, sometimes you only see the silly things about your culture unless you're standing outside of your culture. Why don't you use your imagination for a minute? Think with me. Let's imagine that 300 years from now, if Jesus doesn't come back, 300 years ago, humans have developed some new form of transportation. Let's go full nerd here today. We're, we beam people around. Okay, Star Trek, right? It's how you get to the grocery store. Beam me to John Hurst. Because John Hurst will be here in 300 years. So, <laughs> beam me to John Hurst. How do you get to church? You beam to church. This is how you train. Well, uh, the, there's a history class going on. So uh, you go to class 300 years from now, history class, and they're studying uh, American history of the 1950s, and they introduce this thing called a car. You've never seen a car before. It's completely out of your culture. And, and the teacher says, um, cars are for transportation. This is how people used to get around, how quaint, how, how ancient. They had little things. There would be gaseous explosions they would carry around with them that would enable them to uh, move from place to place on these rubber tires. And all the students would look, oh, wow, that, that's so cool. And then inevitably, some enterprising student would say, teacher, yes. Those things are for transportation, right? Yes. Then what are... What? Why are they all that shiny stuff on there? That that what chrome? What? Why is that all over those cars? And why does that looks like a shark fin on the car? Why does that? Why does the car have a? And those wheels? They're part of them's black, part of them's white. Why? Why is that? Teacher says, "Well, it's a good question. Those are decorative elements." Yeah, but isn't it just for transportation? Why are they decorating it? We, we, don't, I mean, we don't decorate our beam machines. Uh, we, I mean, we just, that's the way we get around. Why are they decorating? That's just silly. Um, <laughs> cars, are, we know, right, even now, cars aren't just for transportation, are they? Well, they are, but they're not really. Not the way we treat them, right? Um, we are foolish enough to believe that uh, 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 the cars that we own, the houses that we have, the clothes that we wear, actually tell you things about us, establish our value. Isn't that silly in our culture that we would think that? You might not notice that unless you're outside the culture looking and saying, why, why, if they're just to cover your body, why are you spending so much money and time and energy on it? Why, if it's just for transportation, you decorate it that way. Why? It's, you look outside the culture, you, 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 you see things that are contradictory and, and silly. And when I talk about them carrying their gods around, let's go visit your friend, okay? That's strange. It's silly. It's a different culture. The way we treat our idols differs in every culture. The fact that idols are there does not change. 
Well, now, the Bible picks this up here. You have to feed and clothe your God in the Canaanite uh, worship religion. The Bible picks this up, though, and says that the sacrifices might be similar to those that they offered their pagan neighbors, uh, that the pagan neighbors offered, but they didn't serve the same purpose. In fact, Psalm 50 is very strong in saying this. Look at what Psalm 50 says. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. What Psalm 50 is saying to the people is he's saying, uh, the psalmist, God is speaking through the psalmist and saying, look, the other gods, the Canaanite gods, they need you. They need to be fed by you. I don't need to be fed by you. In fact, I don't need you. You need me. You need me to come and deliver you and, and help you. I, I don't need, I, I don't eat your food that you bring. Now, if, if that's the case then, why were they still bringing dinner to worship? Why are they bringing meat and drink and, and bread? They're making a statement about God, the God they worship, not about his needs, but about the fact that he really lives with them. So you ask an Israelite, I, I mentioned this before, well, where does God live? Oh, God? God, the, the Canaanite gods live in the heavens somewhere, but our God, he lives in that tent over there. Really? With you? Yep, in that tent. How do you know he lives there? Well, I know because that's his house, and he's got lights. There's lights in his house, and they're on. You know, there's, there was candles in the, the, the tabernacle. The priests had to care for it. It was one of their responsibilities. Really? Yeah. And he's got a cooking fire outside his house. Um, we cook our dinner on this fire here in front of this tent, and, and God has a cooking fire too. He really is there. He really does live among us. That's what these sacrifices communicate. God really is here with us. Now, Leviticus 2, specifically, where we're going to turn now, is about grain offerings. About grain offerings. I didn't mention, I didn't do this last week, but I want to read through Leviticus chapter 2. So you follow along as I read from Leviticus chapter 2 this morning. And this is what uh, Moses, God speaking through Moses says. Leviticus 2 verse 1. When someone brings a grain offering to the Lord, his offering is to be a fine flour. He is to pour oil on it, put incense on it, and take it to Aaron's sons, the priests. The priest shall take a handful of the fine flour and oil together with all the incense and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the offerings made to the Lord by fire. If you bring a grain offering baked in an oven, it is to consist of fine flour, cakes made without yeast and mixed with oil, or wafers made without yeast and spread with oil. If your grain offering is prepared on a griddle, it is to be made of fine flour mixed with oil and without yeast. Crumble it and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. If your grain offering is cooked in a pan, it is... There's recipes here in the Bible. You didn't know that, did you? 
We'll talk about that in a minute. If your grain offering is cooked in a pan, it is to be made of fine flour and oil. Bring the grain offering made of these things to the Lord, present it to the priest who shall take it to the altar. He shall take out the memorial portion from the grain offering and burn it on the altar as an offering made by fire and aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is the most holy part of the offerings made to the the Lord by fire. Every grain offering you bring to the Lord must be made without yeast, for you are not to burn any yeast or honey in an offering made to the Lord by fire. You may bring them to the Lord as an offering of the first fruits, but they are not to be offered in the altar as a pleasing aroma. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of the grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. If you bring a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, offer crushed heads of new grain roasted in the fire. Put oil and incense on it. It is a grain offering. The priest shall burn the memorial portion of the crushed grain and the oil together with all the incense as an offering made to the Lord by fire. Now, chapter 2 is similar to chapter 1 in that God is describing different types of offerings. Someone was talking to me last week and they said, I'm reading through the book of Leviticus. There's a lot of repetition in the book of Leviticus. And that's true. Here are four different options for how you can bring grain offerings in verses 1 through 10. And he tells you what to do with the various options. Um, In chapter 1, you could bring a bull, a ram, or a bird, and he, he gave instructions about what to do. Now we have here instructions about how to treat these four different types of offerings, of grain offerings. You could choose what you wanted to bring. Verses 1 through 3 is about an uncooked grain offering, when you bring flour. Verses four is, verse 4 is about baked grain offerings. Verse 5 is about grilled grain offerings. Verse 7 is about fried grain offerings. Now, it's not the same. Don't think it's exactly the same. There's no yeast involved here. But you could think about these, these offerings this way. One is just flour. One is a loaf. One is like a cracker cooked on a heated stone, like you, like you might make a pancake, and one is like a donut. Now, without all the sugar, fried in oil. Some of you think to yourself, we ought to bring donuts to worship now, even still. But um, uh, you could bring any of these types that, that you wanted. And for each of these, each of these that you, you brought, some of the offering was burned on the altar with, with oil and frankincense. It's interesting, the detail that he goes into, isn't it, in in verse 4, he says, if you make wafers, spread them with oil. I don't know, the text doesn't say, why would somebody choose to bring wafers instead of flour, or a loaf instead of a fried grain offering? I'm, I'm not sure, but if you had, if you'd made these crackers, these maybe pancake type things, you didn't put butter and syrup on them, you spread olive oil on them and presented them. Uh, the oil, you'd mix the oil and it made the flour combustible and the frankincense created just this wonderful odor that would cover the smell of burning bread on the altar. Uh, Now, for each of these, um, again, different types of sacrifices, some of it went on the altar and some of it went to the priest. We'll talk about why the priest would keep some of them in the weeks that are to come. Now, in verses 11 through 13, he gives more specific instructions about these offerings. No leaven, no honey, 
always include salt. Some of you, when we first moved to Lancaster County, we couldn't believe it. There were pretzels everywhere. Pretzels, pretzels, pretzels everywhere. Well, salty grain offerings, it's biblical. So we'll keep moving here with our salt. Now, in verses 14 through 16, uh, we have here specifics for an offering, a grain offering brought during the Feast of First Fruits. And again, we're going to talk about that in the future. That's basically how the text breaks down. Here's how to bring grain offerings. Here's the different types of grain offerings you can bring. Here's how to prepare them. Here's what not to put in them. Here's what to always include. And for special first fruits offerings, here's what you should do. Basically what chapter 2 says. Now, I want to ask and answer two questions, though, that are specific to the text, but I think that help point us toward understanding giving as an act of worship. Here's the two questions I want to answer. Well, we'll start with the first one. Why worship God with a grain offering? Why were the people, why did God command the people to worship Him in this way? And I have to say that answering this question is not easy. In verse 4 of chapter 1, it tells them very specific, the burnt offering is for atonement. Atonement. There's no verse like that in chapter 2. There's no specific instruction about um, why they were to bring the grain offering in chapter 2. So we turn to the text a little bit, the wording here. The word for offering in chapter 2 is somewhat unique. It's a word, when it's used outside the context of worship, it's a word that described tributes that servants would bring to their masters. Or, or gifts that a subject would bring to honor the king. You honor the king by bringing a tribute for his leadership, his sovereignty, his provision for the people. This is foreign in our thinking. We, we don't think about our leaders this way. Um, tax season. What, we're in the midst of tax season, right? All your taxes will be due by April 15th. Um, you don't, when you pay your taxes, do it with the idea, oh, wow, our president, he's great. You write the check. Our congressmen, they're marvelous. You write the check and you send it to Washington trying to honor our leaders. I, that's not how you pay your That's not how I pay my taxes. Hmm. You, you, I, I write this check because this is, well, it, Jesus tells us to pay our taxes. I'm grateful for roads, and I'm grateful for the army and navy, and uh, so uh, I'm, I'm glad to pay my taxes. But I don't pay taxes to honor the president, or the congressman, or congressmen and women. That, but you did this in this culture uh, last year. What was the uh, 60th anniversary of the ascension of Queen Elizabeth to the throne? And they honored her, right? They threw a huge parties. For her, they paid her tribute. They they made offerings to the Queen of England in the form of parades and fireworks and music. Uh, now that that helps us a little bit. Another clue, though, to what this offering means is uh, this uh, grain offering is found in the phrase memorial portion. Memorial portion. It's used in verse two and in verse nine. Memorial portion. The memorial portion was the part of the offering that was consumed on the altar. And it is a memorial portion because it is supposed to remind the worshiper of the reality that God is the source of his sustenance. So here's what the grain offering is. The grain offering is a public declaration by the worshiper 
and a, a reminder to the worshiper that God is the source and sustainer of life. I'll say that again. The grain offering was a public declaration of the worshiper and a reminder to the worshiper that God is the source and sustainer of life. He provides. He is worthy of our devotion. He's the one who gives us grain so that we can live. And we worship Him by returning to Him a portion of what He has given to us. It is a tribute that we bring, we who are the beneficiaries of His generosity. God, by His generosity and His creative power, sustained the Israelites, and so they bring a grain offering to acknowledge that, to, to worship God for His sustaining role in their lives. God placed in their, their worship here a signpost, a reminder about His generosity. The grain they harvested from the ground actually comes from the hand of God and, and it's good that they be reminded of this as they worship, of God's generosity. We, we're, we're prone to forget, aren't we? Oh. We're not very good rememberers. You know this, especially uh, if you have children. My children, they're not abnormal in this. Uh, my ch- I think they have a sign. It's invisible ink painted on their foreheads. It says, I know you clothed me, fed me, entertained me, and housed me today, but really, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> I can't remember this exact incident happening, but I'm, it very well could be happening in our house um, we drive down the road, we pass the McDonald's, they say, can we get milkshakes? We haven't had dessert in so long. I say, what about the gummy bears that I put in your lunch on Tuesday? But that was two whole days ago. My kids are capable of that. I know that. They get it genetically. <laughs> the grain offering was this built-in reminder uh, in this system that testified to God's provision and His generosity. You came and you offered the, the bull to say to God, oh, I come on the basis of a substitute. And you offered grain to say to God, you are the provider and sustainer and source of my life. Um, God atone, we, we are atoned for in the bull and we declare our allegiance with, with the grain offering. Now, now think with me here for a minute about another place in the Bible where these themes of remembering and grain are also brought together. Does that make you think of anything else? Remembering and bread. Our Lord told us that one of the things that we must do when we worship together is to eat the Lord's Supper. We remember Him as, uh, by breaking bread. We remember that He is the provision for us. Jesus is the bread of life. He's God's ultimate provision. So we turn to Him. We trust in Him. We worship Him. When you offered the grain offering in ancient Israel and when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are declaring, we are worshiping the God who provides and we are declaring our allegiance to Him. Think about that. Next Sunday we'll partake of the Lord's Supper together. And when you eat that bread and drink that cup, you are proclaiming, Paul says, the Lord's death and His resurrection until He comes. You're proclaiming your allegiance to Him. You may cheer for the ravens, or the steelers, or the eagles. You may really like products made by Apple. 
You may watch every episode of your favorite television show. You may uh, be devoted to reading uh, your favorite magazine. You devour it every month when it comes out. But our allegiance is to the God who created us and redeemed us. That's what we proclaim when we partake the Lord's Supper. That's what these people were saying when they offered the grain offering. And the Bible appeals to us in a number of ways when it talks about turning to God, our Creator. Sometimes the Bible tells us about our sin debt. You're a sinner. Christ paid the penalty for your sin debt. But it also talks to us, the Bible does, about our need and that Christ is our provision. We are naturally hungry people, not just for food, but for soul nourishment. And our tendency is to feed ourselves on whatever we can find, whatever we think will make us happy. This is what the, the, the poetry uh, that the prophet Isaiah was getting at when he wrote in chapter 55 against, on your sheet, if you want to look. He says, come, God speaking, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. We are condemned by our own appetites. That we long to be satisfied with what doesn't satisfy. This is the discovery, this is the awful discovery of successful people. If you've not ultimately reached the pinnacle of success in your career, if you've never earned the Super Bowl ring or you don't have any Oscars, if you're not president of the company, if you're not a star, if you don't have your dream house yet, if you're not head of the firm, if you're not pastoring the megachurch, if you're not um, reaching all of the goals that you have yet, you still can live under this illusion that there's more out there for you, that you'll, you'll finally be happy if you get whatever the sad discovery that successful people make huh, is, is that they have been spending their money on what's not bread and laboring after what doesn't satisfy. I, I wonder if, if someone were to ask you how much this longing plays a role in your life. This is one of the evidences that we are disconnected from our Creator willfully, that we think that we want other little things to satisfy us. And hence this appeal in Isaiah. Oh, come to me. Come to me. This rescuing appeal of the great God that was echoed by our Lord and Savior who said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. This is the rescuing appeal of the great God. Come and buy food for your soul. It doesn't cost you anything. The reason it's free for you is because it cost Him His Son. Uh, And this is what these people were declaring when they offered the grain offering. They're saying, you, God, are the source of life, and I am allying myself to you. Why worship God with a grain offering? Because it acknowledges his role as a provider. Now, there's a second question. We're going to spend much less time on it to ask and answer. Why are the requirements so specific? Why, Why are the requirements so detailed? Again, God is trying to develop in them a pattern of thought so that they're ready when Jesus comes. These gifts were to be two things. They were to be precious and pure. Precious and pure. 
The text tells us repeatedly that they were to bring fine flour, bring the best flour you have, the most carefully winnowed, um, sifted, cultivated flour that you had. The Israelites had to harvest and winnow and mill and refine and sometimes bake what, what they brought. This took great effort for them. The, their labor produced their food and it also produced their offerings and it was to be the highest form of their work, the finest bit of their flour. There was to be no leaven, no honey. Now that would be bees, honey in the text and it would also be the sweet juice of um, uh, fruit. So don't bring cherry-filled donuts to worship. Is kind of... Um, uh, the reason is that uh, leaven and this sweetness are, are symbols of corrupting influence. Uh, yeast starts the fermentation process, and so does the sugar in honey. That's why you're not supposed to bring it. It's, it's corrupting. Salt, on the other hand, is a preservative. Salt symbolizes the preserving nature of the covenant. The gifts had to be precious, and they had to be pure. Now, having answered those questions, we can think for a moment or two about giving as an act of worship. Why giving is an act of worship? You don't bring flour to church on Sundays. You give. You do bring what Paul would say would be a sacrifice. How does this offering in Leviticus 2 help us understand what we do when we give on Sundays? Why does Paul draw this connection? The text tells us worship... Giving is worship because it declares your allegiance to the God who is the source of life. This is why giving is worship. It's worship because it declares your allegiance to the God who is the source of life. When you give, you are making a declaration about where your life comes from. Not just your physical life, but real, eternal, spiritual life. In fact, giving is, is one of the ways that you understand that Jesus, that God has provided for us through Christ. The Apostle Paul uses sacrificial language not just because it costs them something to give, but because by giving, they are declaring your allegiance to the God who provides. Now I want to think about this practically for just a moment here. Um, one of the signs in your life that you are a maturing person is that you're coming face to face with limits. You have a limited amount of time. You have a limited amount of options. You have a limited amount of money. And some of those limits are limits that God himself imposes. Why? Why? If we have but... Well, that's uh, uh, 70 years, 80 years to live on earth. Does God make our bodies such that we need to spend a third of that time sleeping? Why did God do that? Why, why would God make it so that, that it takes so much effort to produce our food for us? You, you don't see that connection as easily as, as you could. But if every single one of us were farmers, we would all know... Uh, by the, the ache in our back and the calluses on our hands, how hard it is to get food out of the ground. Why did God, why didn't, here, let's go Star Trek again. Why didn't God give us little machines, you know, that we could just talk to and that would produce our food? I've seen one of those. Gene Roddenberry thought of it. Why didn't God, why, why, why did he make, God imposed limits on us in what we can do and what we can give because of, of how much life takes, just living takes. 
and within the constraints of the limits of your time, your money, your energy, you offer to God sacrifices for His use. In response to the Bible's call to acknowledge the worthiness of God who provides us with all time, with all talent, with all skill, with all money, it's a declaration. It's a reminder of your allegiance. There is one true God who is the source of life and we offer the best of what we have for His purposes. Do you see what this means? What this means is that your need to give surpasses the need of the congregation to spend. Regardless of what we do with the money, and we're responsible to use it wisely, I wouldn't dismiss that, regardless of what we do with the money, um, it is an expression for you in the delight and the goodness and the provision of God. If all of a sudden $50 million fell from the sky and landed here in the pulpit and we could do with it whatever we wanted, you would still need to give. Why? Because your heart needs to say to God, you are the source of life and I am allied to you and I testify to it by this gift. Today's the last Sunday of the month. Very soon, early in February, uh, there'll be a report in the bulletin about our giving. You see it every month. We've put it there for a couple of years. Uh, it will publicly announce our offerings. That re- report will say, it will be our public declaration as a congregation of everything that God has provided for us. This is the portion that we have set aside, represented in real dollars and real cents. This is the portion that we have set aside to remember Him, to celebrate His goodness to us, to worship Him. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and uh, we are uh, grateful to you that you are the source and provider of life. God, we are um, in our culture, in our country, not a wealthy people. I know that that in our world, we are wealthier than uh, 95% of the human beings that live on this planet. But but we, by and large, are are not wealthy in this this world. There's um, no one, unless they're keeping it a very closely guarded secret, who could easily write a million-dollar check. Yet we want to be faithful to you in declaring our allegiance to you with the money that you do give us. Uh, Help us as we, we give to worship well, wisely, carefully, and gladly because you provide for us. You provided for us through Jesus Christ, our Savior, uh, and for that we are grateful. Um, Strengthen us. Change our minds and our hearts for how we think about how we worship you with our money. Thank you for those who are in our church who are generous men and women who, who get this and who honor you that way. We want to give for ultimate reasons. Help us. Help us, we pray, to do so. For Jesus' sake, in his name we pray. Amen.